So, another episode of our TIB Playground podcast. And this time we are joined with coach Pascal Meurs. Hello, Pascal. Hello, Stefan. Great to have you. Thank you. Thanks for, for joining us. Uh, you are far, far away from Belgium at this time. Well, far away is relative in, in this kind of world, I guess. Uh, you are in Spain now, right? Exactly. In Valencia. Yeah. So for, for those who don't know Pascal Meurs, can you explain a little bit or introduce yourself a little bit who you are and what do you do? Well, yes, uh, I'm a Belgian coach. I'm 39 now. Uh, I have been uh, coaching professionally or semi-professionally since seven, eight years right now. Uh, the last two seasons, I was active as a head coach in the first division in Luxembourg. And for this season, I moved to Spain, to Valencia, again, to work as a professional coach. Okay. But your your career started as a professional coach in the Netherlands. Is that correct? No. Actually, it was in France. Okay. So... Uh, I just started out coaching in my local club uh, in Belgium, in mm -hmm. Peer. Mm -hmm. And by hazard, by accident, that was uh, on a girls team. And then I moved up to, to a team closer in my neighborhood, which was Houtalen, mm -hmm. which also had a team in the first division women league. Um, and first by doing a youth team, by assisting on the first team, I took over as a head coach in first division women. And the year after, I got my first uh, professional opportunity, which was in France, also on a woman team that was playing the EuroLeague. And that was together with my colleague uh, Thibaut Petit, who was mm -hmm. at that time the head coach of Arras in the north of France. And actually there I was his assistant coach and I was also head of the youth department. Okay. A lot of work, I guess. Yeah, indeed, indeed. That's a full-time job. Also there, you have a lot of requirements for that uh, coaching job in the youth department. Mm -hmm. Not anybody can do that. You have to do, you have to have a level, a certain degree. There is a whole uh, roadbook of rules which you must apply to as being a professional coach in a first, uh, as a professional club in the first division. There are a lot of requirements. And yes, I, I combined that with, with helping out Thibaut a bit uh, with the first team. So yes, that was actually a very busy year. Um, but I look back with lots of good memories over there. And actually that year, that was 2012. Uh, that was, for now, it was also my last season so far in women's basketball. Yeah. After that year in France... First, I went on a leave to the United States to do an apprenticeship in a first division college team in America with coach Phil Martelli, a former coach of the year in college basketball. Then I took over a team in Luxembourg in the first division, which was actually at that time my first head coaching job on a male seniors team. Later on, I did a team in Holland in first division. And afterwards, I went back to uh, Luxembourg for two years to coach a uh, better team there, a contender for the championship. But your, your focus as a coach, well, you're a professional coach, of course, but you have always focused on uh, player development and on youth development. 
Well, yes, I must say that, that I'm kind of a workaholic when it comes down to basketball. And actually, workaholic is a word that I don't use very often because uh, I don't see basketball as a work. I see it as a passion. In in life, I also have another degree. And if I had uh, other other intentions, then I would choose for another job, which would have been a much easier path in my life. <laughs> but for me, basketball is, is passion. Yeah. So when I say uh, passion, then that means that uh, I put a lot of uh, work in there, a lot of energy, and I have actually a very broad uh, spectrum. Yeah, of course, I, I started out as a youth coach, mm -hmm. so for sure I have a certain experience and expertise within it. But I also have, for example, a background in mathematics. Mm -hmm. And that makes sure that, that also I, I had a special interest in advanced analytics in basketball. Okay. And that's, that's something, for instance, where I like to focus on. But uh, for now, my main goal is still uh, being a head coach at the highest level possible. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what made you move to Spain? Well, actually, I had a, a successful year in Luxembourg last year. Against all odds, we made it to the finals, um, where actually we ended up being very close to winning the championship, while before the season, nobody even mentioned us as an outsider over there. Uh, we had a rough season, a rough season in the sense of injuries, in the sense of having bad luck on one of our import spots. And still, against all odds, we made it to the finals. We had a successful year. And actually, that made me decide to leave Luxembourg without having any security about my future. Just because, like I just explained, basketball is passion for me. And I'm, I'm a type of guy that is either all in or all out. Mm -hmm. And for that time, I spent three complete seasons in Luxembourg. And I needed something else for the future. I needed a new challenge. I needed uh, something else to put my full focus on. Also knowing that doing better in my in my current club in Luxembourg would be very difficult towards next season. So I was really up to a next challenge and a next step in my career. Because up till now, I told you I've, I've been coaching professionally for seven years. Mm -hmm. Actually, when I have a, when I look back on my career, I'm very lucky to to be able to say that every year in my career I put a step forward. Mm -hmm. On top of that, for all those those years, uh, I've I've never been uh, fired as a coach, which is nowadays it's, it's quite <laughs> an exception. Yeah. It's a bit weird to to say it like this, but at the end, it is like that. And and I I must say that that on the on the places where I coached, uh, on almost all of them, at a later point, uh, they asked me back. So, which I see as a as a huge uh, compliment, and every time actually it was me that decided that I was ready for a next step in my career, and so the same thing happened last year. I decided uh, to be ready for a next step um, to a higher level without having any security at all about my future. And mm -hmm. um, well, of course, the European market as as being a head coach is is very tough. There are a lot of uh, coaches. Uh, that, that are willing to compete and that are willing uh, to do everything to, to chase their dreams. And there are just a limited amount of, of uh, jobs on clubs. Yeah. But actually, 
I was getting a little bit nervous, uh, <laughs> but then this, this huge opportunity uh, popped up from uh, Valencia uh, during the summer, and I was very happy. I was, and I am, and I am even more now. <laughs> very happy with this uh, opportunity. So, so explain, explain to everybody what, had, what has happened during the summer. You became coach well, of... Yes, uh, I became the coach of Euro Pro Basketball. Okay. And that's an international academy for professional players. And we are based here in Valencia. It, it's an academy run by Brad Canis, a former player that, that played everywhere in the world, to, to keep it short. And he raised and he founded his own academy here for foreign players that are looking for a job here in Europe. So it's and like those... a, it's it's like a waiting hall for for uh, foreign players who want to play in Europe. Yes, uh, exactly. Yeah. And most of the players players are Americans, and they look for a job here in Europe. And what we do is uh, those players they can sign up for a program for a couple of weeks, going to a couple of uh, months, where they learn how to practice with a European coach, a European style of play. Yeah. Uh, also a bit more into understanding the game on court, but also off court. And what uh, Brett, as the leader of the academy, tries to do is he tries to send them on tryouts, of course, and mm -hmm. tries to send them into teams. So are they playing games as well during that yes. time? Or? Yes, uh, we practice twice a day, but at least once a week we also have a game and then we play against uh, local teams here in Spain. Okay. Okay, so that's actually a, an interesting uh, part to, to, to get those players ready for the European market. Yes, exactly. Um, I must always also say that, that the level of those players is very different. Um, some of the players really have a good level. Mm -hmm. Last week we had a player here with, with experience in the FIBA Europe Cup, uh, for instance. But we also have players that don't have that level at, at all and that are really uh, chasing, chasing that, that dream of playing professionally overseas. But we're maybe at the end of the program right yeah. here, we come to the conclusion that maybe it is nothing for them and maybe it is... Uh, grasped a little bit too high for their own uh, qualities, for their potential. Mm -hmm. But even in those situations, I think the program is very good because then at least they know and at least they can return home in knowing that they did everything to achieve that dream, but that maybe they should put basketball aside at least as a player and find a different goal in basketball. Mm -hmm. And is this like the, the only option to try to get into the market? What other things would they do besides going to such a place like? Well, Euro most Pro players, Basket? of course, most players, they work with an agent. And then it is the agent that, that does an important uh, job in finding them a team. Uh -huh. uh, here, I must say that, that we attract often players that, that are without an agent or at least without a, an agent with a with a excellent network in Europe. Of course, we also we only attract those players that are not on the market right away that didn't find a job right yeah, away. Yeah. So very often we end up with with players that either for some reason they didn't play first division college at all. Either no. they did play first division college, but they were out for a year because of an injury or because of personal problems and after one year they still want to chase that dream 
So and yeah, how, how long does this academy exist? Is it just started or? No, it's it's it has been here since I think like like five years. But okay. Brett actually founded this uh, academy in Girona, more in the the northeast uh, of Spain. And since one year and a half, we moved to Valencia. And actually, there's a very good reason for it because, and actually, that's also for me a very big reason why I decided to say yes and to commit to the academy for this season. Because uh, Valencia right now is one of the hotspots in Europe when it comes down to facilities, when it comes down to networking opportunities. And we are practicing, in, in, of course, in the same facilities as Valencia basketball oh. on the men's side, on the women's side. So That's nice. every, day I'm, every day I'm practice, I can walk in and walk out uh, on the practices of a EuroLeague team. Yeah which for me, of course, is, is uh, very nice. And it's also a big reason for me to be here because this facility, this city, it really breeds basketball every single day. In everything you see, it breeds uh, basketball at the very highest level. And I can say without any doubt that here in Valencia right now, they have the most beautiful facilities uh, in Europe, at mm -hmm. least. And that's also since one year and a half. It is called L'Alqueria del Basket. It is like, if you would translate it to English, you would say the form house of basketball. <laughs> and actually, it is a huge facility with, with nine indoor courts plus Whoa. three outside courts. Uh, it's brand new. All the youth teams of Valencia basketball, they have like uh, 650 youth players. They all practice in the same facilities. So that's, a, that's a huge step forward for a club like Valencia. To be able to train in such facilities, it will give them even more uh, quality in their training. Exactly. Exactly. And this whole facility, it is built next door, the big arena of the first team. Here in Valencia, they have a big arena where, which can host uh, up to 9,000 people, but it's even getting better. On the other side of the arena, they have plans and they already gathered uh, the budget, private budget, to build a brand new arena. Whoa. And that brand new arena will be ready in, in two, three years. And actually, that can host up to 15,000 people. So if you... Take those together uh -huh. in two, three years here in Valencia, you will have uh, an amazing facilities, which will be so unique in Europe. It's uh, going to be the capital of basketball in Europe. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm, I'm 100% sure that they will be competing to, to hosts like the EuroLeague, yeah, Final yeah. Four, uh, maybe World Cup, maybe Olympics, uh, things like that. I really think that at that point they will be able to compete to organize all those uh, events. So you moved at the right time now that you're there. And if you can mm -hmm. stay around long enough, you're going to see it all develop for before you run it. Exactly. And yeah. for me, it's, it's a daily dream. I wake up here in the morning. I have an apartment here. First of all, I'm extremely happy that when I wake up, I know that the only thing I have to think about all day long <laughs> is basketball. Yeah. Of course, in a world where a lot of uh, people are, are aiming for those spots, it's already rare. But then I take a 10-minute walk and I walk into the most beautiful facilities uh, of Europe. I give my two practices a day. I do my work around it. And 
in between, I go to the practices, either of the first team, either of the women's team, either I go and watch what they do here at the youth level. Yeah. Because already since a couple of years, I've, I have been writing and I have been focusing on the youth program here yeah. in Spain. In my eyes, it's the best in the world. And it's for me, it's so amazing to walk into one gym where actually you can follow nearly 80 Everything. practices uh, yeah. at a time. But I guess it's not only Valencia, it's, it's the whole country, it's, it's the whole of Spain that really breeds basketball and at a high level. Uh, we just saw the world championship mm -hmm. where they have been crowned as world champions. Mm -hmm. So what makes that Spain has such a, a big quality and such a big feeling for basketball? Well, of course, there's a lots of things to answer here. First of all, it's, it's a culture, it's a tradition. It has to do with the fact that Spain, in my eyes, has the best youth coaches of the world. Um, it's in their blood. They do certain things. They do it differently. And we must also say that they have been very successful over the last 10, 20 years. A couple of times they were very close to winning a World Cup or to winning yeah. the Olympics. And right now they did it all. Yeah. They, won the world, they won the World Cup. Um, teams like Real Madrid, they're competing every single year to win the EuroLeague. They have won it a couple of times over the recent years. We have, for instance, the coach of the national team, Sergio Scariolo, uh -huh. who's actually Italian, but he's the head coach of the national team of Spain. He was the assistant coach of the Toronto Raptors, who just became the NBA yeah. champion. On that team, of course, you also had the huge impact of, of a guy like Mark Gasol. Yeah. Uh, you have maybe the, the brightest talent right now where everybody talks about Luka Doncic. Mm -hmm. He's Slovenian. But he, since he was, now I have to guess, I think it was 14 or 15 years old, he has been playing here in Real Madrid and he had his, his development right here in Spain. So, what, so yes, but, a lot of things are coming together right here. Yeah, but I think really that, that the Spanish ACB, the first division uh -huh. here, it is the second best league after the NBA, if you keep aside, of yeah. course, the, the Euro League, because it's, it's a bit different. Yeah, as a domestic league, it's really one of the best that we have in Europe or worldwide, for that matter. Exactly, exactly. But you said coaches do it differently mm -hmm. in Spain, starting from the youth. So that's mm -hmm. where it all starts. Eh? It starts with the youth players and then their development and their training. So mm -hmm. in your opinion, what, what do they do different? What, what is the X factor for Spanish basketball that they can produce all those talents? For me, it's the way they practice, uh, the amount of, of hours they practice, and I can give you uh, different examples. For instance, on that World Cup, whether Spain would have won it all, or maybe if they would have been beaten by Australia in the semifinals, mm -hmm. which was also possible. very <laughs> possible if yeah. you've seen the game. Yeah. Um, for me, it stands out that Spain has the highest basketball IQ on the court. Without a doubt, they're the best in decision-makings on the court. And on top of that, passing-wise, passing skills, for me, Spain stands out enormously. There's The second team in their passing skills doesn't even come close. And that all starts, for me, with the youth. Here, you can really go walk into a... 
kids practice with 10 years old where players are taught how to give a pass with one hand out of the dribble already here already yes i have i've walked into a practice here with uh, 10 years old which were forced to shoot three pointers okay and now i hear if I listen very well, I hear certain listeners already getting angry at me <laughs> because uh, if yeah. you're not 10 years old, you, sh you shouldn't, you be, shouldn't be doing that. And taking three-pointers. And like here and in Belgium, it, even, it doesn't even count if you, no, if you try no, to shoot no, three-pointers. So. My story isn't finished yet because okay. I completely agree with all those coaches yeah. until you listen to the reason behind it. And the reason behind it, because I, I spoke with that coach afterwards, he just did it in one drill at the end of practice. Oh. And he explained me why he did it in that drill. And the only reason was then how to teach, how to make the players feel that they need their legs when shooting. Of oh. course, those, those 10 years old, they didn't even come close yeah. when they took their normal shots and they had no chance to even touch the rim behind that three-point line. Okay. But by using their legs, he was just explaining them, well, if you use your legs, you can shoot for much further and higher and so on. So if I just tell you here in Spain, 10 years old, we're taking three-pointers, you might think, oh, He's yeah. crazy and it's very bad. <laughs> yeah. Agree until you listen to the reason behind it. And there's many uh, examples like this. But that's, instance, that's, that's really an understanding about the biomechanics behind those kind of things. It's exactly. Not, it's, it's not only every, about... Every coach knows that you have to use your legs to, to have uh, force in your shot. Uh -huh. But you also have to find a way and... Uh, some arguments to teach it to kids yeah. because to there make is a difference feel, yeah. between having that knowledge for your own uh -huh. and how to transfer it uh, into kids. And so, the same way here, sometimes you can walk into a practice here where kids are maybe defending in a, a little bit into a zone or into a box uh, uh -huh. defense, which is all very bad if you use that during the games to win your youth games. But if it comes down to make your players a little bit smarter on the court and you just do it for a very limited amount of time, mm -hmm. I think you can invent lots of drills where you can make the decision-making of your players uh, much better. So, yeah, the sooner you start developing that kind of mindset within the youth players, the sooner they, they understand what is possible and what is not what did they have to do as a decision-making point in a game or, or even at a practice? Indeed. And, and talking about the general mindset, what I notice here is that, that people, they just watch basketball at the very highest level. They watch EuroLeague, they watch uh, ACB, they mm -hmm. watch uh, the World Cup. And they just, coaches, they just watch and they pay attention to what the best players in the world are doing. Yeah, And... They try to copy that or they, tr they try to find a way how to teach that to kids. While we in Belgium, we would be way more 
careful and we would think about it and <laughs> oh no that's that's a one-handed pass and maybe my players they first have to learn how to give a two-handed straight chest pass with the, the stretched arms and the thumbs uh, pointing downwards yeah. afterwards and then if we have five games in a row without one single turnover then we start talking about one-handed passes maybe that's not the way how to do it you can tell the same thing about layups i see so many teams uh, in belgium in western europe taking layup lines for i don't know what 10 15 yeah. minutes every single practice and it's all the same on the right side the players have to do a right step left step uh, and a right-handed uh, normal layup mm -hmm. on the left side it is left right left hand and Coaches, they keep on uh, improving, correcting those motions. And we do it 15 minutes every practice and every game. And everybody is uh, complaining about, I don't have enough practice time <laughs> with my team, with my kids. But So their 30... priorities are, are wrong. And yeah, for 30%, you're just making normal layups. While here, if you walk into a practice, well, maybe 10 years olds are making uh, Euro steps and floaters and other types of layups off foot, uh, scoring with the right hand mm -hmm. while you pushed off on your right foot. And actually, yeah, they start way earlier with this and they don't wait until somebody can make 100 normal layups <laughs> in a row before starting to teach other things. Let kids make mistakes. Yeah. Let them make decisions on the court. Do it very often with defense straight, straight away. Put them in those kinds of situations where they have to choose whether their last step is with the left or the right and whether they should use their right hand or left hand. So Instead that's... of sticking to the dogmas, oh, you're on the right side of the basket, so yeah. you have to use, by definition, you're your right hand. You're doing it wrong, yeah. No, but th so that that's a kind of philosophy, kind of vision that they have in Spain, and that they can or or will instill in every uh, age category in each club. Then, because exactly, exactly. That's uh, in uh, my opinion, in my eyes, that's that's more the general uh, mindset here in Spain. Yeah, it's not uh, only Valencia. Well here, what they do well here in Spain is they watch a little bit less of NBA, but everybody is watching here the EuroLeague, yeah. of course, and everybody yeah. is watching here ACB basketball. While yeah, NBA, of course, is is uh, a lot of uh, isolations. It's mm -hmm. a lot of one-on-one uh, -on -one baskets. Uh, uh, so yeah, that, that's also one of my questions is that, well, the game evolves over the past few years. We've seen the success of the Warriors and how that impacted the game. Is that something that they um, try to incorporate in their vision or change their vision in Spain or they just keep uh, with their own philosophy which works and they don't really uh, look too much from outside uh, influence? They do, they do. But uh, to see the newest trend, most and for all, first of all, they watch in their own country. Yeah. Because if I look to basketball internationally, I see a lot of things originate here in Spain. Okay. But they do. Uh, for instance, Valencia basketball with their under-18 team, they also compete in like uh, the EuroLeague uh, competition for youth teams. They have like an under-18 uh, competition. And while all the other big teams like Alba Berlin, Barcelona, they have like an imported very 
tall player on yeah. your team. Valencia basketball does it for 90 to 100% with kids uh, local from yeah. around uh, Valencia. They have a much smaller team and they just try to solve it. If they don't have the size, well, maybe they go into a full court uh, pressure defense mm -hmm. or they trap everybody with the ball. And still they were very successful in, in doing this. So mm -hmm. no, they, they adapt, they see what they have and they try to make the best of it. Mm -hmm. But maybe I want to come back to, to, to my statement. If I look internationally, lots of things are, are starting here in Spain. If I can give one example to, uh, for coaches, I think by now almost everybody heard about it. Like there's an action called the Spain pick and roll action. Actually, it means that in a normal pick and roll, you add a third player that sets a back screen for the screener. Mm -hmm in the pick and roll action well and actually yeah the name says it all it is called spain pick and roll it has been originated right here if everybody that watched the nba finals or that watched uh, toronto raptors play an offense well they had the spain pick and roll action why sergio scariolo once again right now he's the assistant coach with toronto but i see different things when i talk about defense well in ball screen defense, I must say that over the last couple of years, I thought I've, I had seen it all with a flat hedge, a hard hedge, a trap, pushing, going under, drop defense, uh, ice defense. Till like one or two years ago, right here in, in Spain, they have something new where they, they call it next defense, mm -hmm. where it is just the next defender that takes the player with the ball in a ball screen action. And that's, that started out here in the Spanish ACB here a couple of years ago. And if you look now to the World Cup, then you see several teams running this next defense to defend uh, the pick and roll. So if there is one team or one country in the world which you cannot uh, blame for sticking to their IDs, well, maybe it is Spain because <laughs> my feeling is really that, that they are really uh, cutting edge here and they try to innovate and they are looking for, for new things to make the game more efficient. But new things start with one of the coaches trying it out during practice, during games. And... Until it's, well, if it works, then other teams try to pick it up. But to make it to the national level, youth national teams or even Spain national team, it needs to be incorporated in the vision of the national line of development, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's something that Spain also does better than other countries, I guess, that they don't mind adding stuff like that, but also not only putting it on one team, but trying to incorporate it in the whole vision of the development of national teams. Mm -hmm. I, I see two things here. First of all, my first impression here is that coaches, that they are way more open in the sense that they, okay, yeah. when you talk to coaches right here, everybody is, is ready to, to share, share all the details yeah. and all the tactics and strategies they try to use on their teams. Mm -hmm. And that's for, for youth teams, but that's also for seniors teams. Here, I have much more a feeling that, that all coaches are more on the same page or at least uh, one big uh, family where yeah, they yeah. share information. And you see it on lots of things and you, you see it 
I think here coaches are, are more respected and for sure youth coaches are more respected. When you walk into to the cafeteria of Valencia basketball, mm -hmm. here it can happen that uh, the coach of the under 12 team is, is having a coffee in the cafeteria with the head coach of the first team. <laughs> and also okay. last weekend I was at the team presentation of Valencia basketball where all 650 uh, kids of Valencia basketball are presented to the big audience uh, in their team. And you see it, the coach right here is, is more respected. And all those youth teams, they're way more involved in the whole story and the whole mission of the team. When last year Valencia basketball won the Euro Cup, then also all the youth teams were uh, involved in the party and even the statement of, of the general manager of Valencia was to all the youth coaches was very clearly this is a victory for all of us mm -hmm. and we are all on the same page and we are all working on the same mission and the youth, the youth coaches right here they feel that appreciation and they feel that they are working on the same thing. People might also say of course that uh... Spain is just a bigger country. They have a bigger pond to fish in to try to get all the talents together. And they also mm -hmm. have more means to pay their youth coaches and so on and so on and so on. So that's the reason why they have that philosophy, why they can do all those things. Well, I don't agree completely. If the size of the country would matter, then the USA would have won uh, <laughs> of Spain. Yeah. And then also Lithuania wouldn't have a chance even to make it to the World Cup. And with three and a half million people, they did it extremely well. And without the refs, they would have been even in the quarterfinals or in the semifinals of this, of this World Cup. And when we talk about uh, finances, uh, no, Sin after the crisis right here, youth coaches here in Spain are definitely not paid better or more than, for example, Belgium. So it's really a matter of the clubs, the whole club, the top of the club, the, the manager, the CEO, whoever, that also has the, the same respect for the youth coaches as for the coach of the first team. Exactly. And, and every youth coach here is very proud to be a part mm -hmm. of that family. It's uh, like uh, many, many people on, on social media. Everybody likes to use the hashtag ball is life. Well, <laughs> I have the feeling that here in Spain, that that hashtag ball is life has, has a better meaning or is closer to the reality yeah. than in some of the other countries. What about the... the... The fact, like in Belgium, a lot of coaches switch teams like every year. There's no way that you can try to keep the same coaches for three, four, five years. So that makes it a lot more difficult to keep the same philosophy throughout your entire youth development. Is that something that in Spain will happen less? That you will have the same coaches stay on the team or on the, the age category for years and years and years to make it easier to have the philosophy followed each and every year? Well, yes, I think that um, here in Spain, like I said before, the youth coaches, they get way more respect. And if you get way more respect, you feel happier in mm -hmm. your job of a youth coach. You don't feel the urge that easily to switch clubs. Yeah. But also it means that maybe you're criticized less often by parents because oh, yeah. here everybody uh, respects that the youth coach is uh, 
doing his best with, with all their kids and that he's taking the best decisions on the court. And here it is respected. And within the club, it wouldn't be tolerated if, if, uh, if parents uh, try to interfere with that. And I can imagine, I haven't heard here about it, but if there would be a problem, I can also imagine that here in Spain, that those youth coaches that are also better backed up by their committee and by the GM. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, I think that, that less coaches have the intention or feel the urge to switch uh, clubs very often, mm -hmm. or that clubs uh, in other countries sometimes when teams, even new teams, don't win as much as the president would expect. <laughs> they look for a, a yeah. short-term solution in firing the coach and just thinking that, oh, let's take another coach and then we will win more games. Instead of sticking to the same philosophy and trusting the yeah. process and so on. So it's really the best blueprint you can have to create a successful basketball environment in your country. So with, with This Is Basketball, we of course, we follow Belgian basketball the most. How can something like what's happening in Spain now, how can we translate that to Belgium? How, how can we convince clubs, coaches, parents, look, guys, this is really the way it should be. Um, there are lots of elements here. There's not one simple solution because otherwise somebody would have done it, I hope. Um, first of all, I think you need to create a certain culture. You need to create a certain brand mark where players, where kids feel the need or do really want to be part of that organization and that uh, that culture and i think for example like the academy elite athletes in antwerp is mm -hmm. doing a good job on that level there i really see that that they are creating something uh, huge where also players uh, want to be part of it but it has to be um, more spread out If I see, for example, like even last night, we have a girl, Emma Miesemann, which is in the WNBA, which is playing at very highest level. She's scoring mm -hmm. 30 points in, in the decisive games of the playoffs of the WNBA. She's a former EuroLeague MVP Final Four. Mm -hmm. What do we do in Belgium with it to... I don't know, to make it attractive, to, to treat your stars very well. If I compare this to, to Spain or to France, well, they know how to treat their stars. But that's, only, that's only the media, right? That, that, that's nothing... No, that's also the federation. That's also the basketball clubs, I think. Uh, maybe another example on the male side is, of course, Sam Van Rossum, uh -huh. which is playing right here in, in Valencia basketball, of course. Yeah. Well, he will be playing EuroLeague next year. And I don't know how many people in, in Belgium realize this at what level he is playing right here. But in Belgium, in my opinion, that's, that's way too much overlooked. The, the most we can do is, is put him on a flyer for a basketball camp or something. <laughs> But I think there are way more options, uh, I don't know, to pay him respect and to put him on a podium where he's like, in, like an example for lots of kids. Once more, I think that in countries and for sure the federations in, in France and in Spain, because I worked in both countries, mm -hmm. I really have the feeling that, that there they do a way better job in, in selling, treating uh, their stars way better. And it pays off. 
in the short term because they see more kids signing up for basketball yep. because of those examples. But also in the long run, because of course now in France you have uh, Tony Parker who is coming back to his his, his country to to financially support a male and a female team at the highest level in France. That's a good uh, so, thing for France, for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and and one of the reasons is that that uh, France has always kept on supporting Tony Parker, kept on yeah. in, involving him not only in the national team, but also in the campaigns to, to, to attract more yeah. kids into the sports and, and, and initiatives like that. So, so actually, that's also something that uh, the Belgian Federation had or tried to do with the Belgian Cats. Uh, there mm -hmm. was there was mm -hmm. a certain hype around that team. Exactly, and, and, exactly. And, I was nicely surprised by the the social media action around yeah. the, the Belgian Cats. That's true. Uh, and I also noticed that some of the first division teams in in Belgium, like uh, Brussels, have true. been doing it for yeah. a couple of years. Antwerp Giants. Yeah. I now see that that Ostend is is making a, a big move. Mm -hmm. That they're really improving their their social media uh, campaigns, which I think, of course, is a a very good step. But it's not the only step. Mm -hmm. uh, like I said in the beginning, the answer to this problem it won't be one simple solution no, there, there are many things we need to to do a lot of steps in every layer of our basketball community and mm -hmm. one of those layers is the first division uh, euro millions basketball league and when i think about that and we talked to several people now over the past few weeks about the new season and something that um surprises us is that some teams have chosen new coaches and those new coaches are rookie coaches meaning they, they never coached before and they get the chance here in Belgium to coach a first division team and when I look at you coach you have all this experience starting from France to, to the Netherlands to Luxembourg to Spain to, to the USA and somehow Maybe you've turned them down, I don't know, but, but somehow they overlook our own Belgian coaches who have the experience, who have the possibilities, who have the potential to become really good coaches. So why do clubs of our first division, why do they not respect our own Belgian coaches as much as they do for foreign coaches? Um, that's a good question. But it's not a question for me. You have to ask that question to the clubs. No, but do you not as... think that that's part of the problem as well? You speak of respect for the coaches. You speak of trying to 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 create more like public figures in basketball. Those public figures are also coaches. Those are not only players. And if you have a successful coach, like you have now, rumors who gets a real big opportunity to go to Germany, and that gets a lot of press coverage. So why are other clubs here in Belgium so reluctant to choose another Belgian coach with a lot of experience? Well, I think, first of all, that's that's a question not for me. You have to ask that to the clubs. But it's it's a bit sad to see that, that in Belgium, we, also, we always have a tradition in pushing our own people back. Mm -hmm. Because... 
Um, I think in Belgium, and I don't want to talk about me personally, I'm going to talk about uh, Belgian coaches uh, in general, yeah. uh, young, passionate uh, Belgian coaches, mm -hmm. because, I, because I get that question quite often. Uh, what's my next step? What can I do to get at the highest level? Yeah. And there, there are several things, of course. Um, I have the feeling that, that in Belgium, that, that young, motivated coaches, that they have to prove to be five times better than a foreigner before yeah. they get the chance. And the sad thing about this story, and that's for sure sad for me, is that when I travel around and when I go to other countries, I face the opposite problem because over there I'm a foreigner and there I have the feeling that I have to prove that I'm five times <laughs> better than the local coaches. And no, but it is, it is true. And yeah. you have several co several countries where the federations and the leagues, they work in the opposite sense and they really protect their own coaches. And they do it in, in several ways. For example, uh, I was a couple of months ago, I was in uh, Lithuania to uh -huh. speak, to give coaching clinics to the local coaches uh, at their annual event. And actually, in Lithuania, they have a rule when a first division team hires a foreign coach, that club has to pay a fine every year of 10,000 really? euros to the federation. Whoa. And that 10,000 euros, that goes into like a youth funds, and they spend it on, on uh, youth basketball. And the idea behind it is, of course, to protect their own yeah. uh, coaches. For example, uh, France has a long uh, tradition in protecting their own local coaches and they make it really, really hard on you to have your degrees from another country being homologized yeah. uh, and for you to be able to coach in France. And in Spain, actually, that's the same thing. Um, in Spain, they have the same thing with the degrees. If you have coaching degrees from other countries, they don't count here. So you have to start your process all over again. And on top of that, here, they also have that part of respect where we talked yeah, yeah. about it for a long time. If here a position within Valencia basketball opens up, well, first of all, they will look what they have in their own house and they will look to one of the youth uh, coaches that did an extremely good job over the past years in their category and they really would give him the chance, mm -hmm. which of course, within their perspective, which is great, that coach, he spent so many years, he, he worked uh, very, very hard to prove what yeah. he can do. Uh, they trusted the process. They had all confidence in him uh, and he kept on doing it day in, day out, um, not getting paid a lot. And so he gets an opportunity for the next step. And I see it in Valencia basketball where all coaches and where the whole organization is from around Valencia. They give local people a chance. But I also see it broader in, in the rest of Spain too. That's, that's really something. That... In that sense, you could say that me personally, that I'm in a, in a weird situation. <laughs> yeah. It's really funny that you have to work harder now that you're outside of Belgium. And if you would want to return to Belgium, you would have to work even as hard as if you go in another country because in Belgium, we don't respect our own 
coaches. That's mm -hmm. that's that's really and, and you could say, and some lis listeners will say, yeah, but in Belgium actually we do the same thing. We also have uh, coaching degrees, and we also ask our foreigners to to do those coaching degrees. But when I look then in reality, mm. that's not the truth. No, here in in Belgium. The local coaches, yes, they have to follow the courses yeah. for sever several years in a row before they can coach a team. But I also see so clubs and regions. And, and so the intention is there to really um, um, educate our youth coaches to become mm -hmm. first division coaches. But once they get the degree, well, there's no not one club in Belgium who does even consider taking a rookie Belgian coach definitely if, definitely not if they haven't ever played first division if you have uh, but, if you... but for me either way is is fine for me i think the idea behind it is great that if you before people can work with your kids or with your young adults to to learn them something about basketball that first they have yeah to of have course degree, yeah. that idea is is fine for me but then it has to be for everybody. Yeah. Then it has to be not only for the local coaches, but for everybody. Yeah. If you want to skip the whole process, that's fine too. But then don't uh, don't punish your local coaching coaches by exactly. forcing them into those coaching courses. Because right now the balance is is not really in equilibrium, and I see so many so many teams and examples where. Uh, in reality, there is a certain head coach, but they the club looks for a local coach with an A degree to sit next to him on the bench. But <laughs> on the score sheet, of course, he's he's marked like the head yeah. coach because otherwise the, the other yeah. coach would be wouldn't be able to to coach that game. Yeah, and if you look further than the coaches, if you look at players, there have also been a lot of discussion during the summer as well about players um, leaving Belgium. To get more education, to get get to a higher level, uh, because mainly because they don't have the opportunities here in Belgium to play at the first division to develop themselves at a young age. To be clear, I mean there's a lot of Belgian players playing at first division, but if you look at players from 16, 17 on, I, th I don't think any club will have any of those guys on their team and having playing time. So. Is that also something that we, we need to take into account if we want to raise the level here in Belgium, that we need to try to keep our own players as well? Yes, exactly. But I think this problem is linked to the previous uh, problem because we spoke about uh, coaches in Belgium. We also are linked to that is also the pressure on coaches mm -hmm. because the pressure on coaches in the first division in Belgium is huge. If you lose three times in a row, you yeah. should be worried, worried about your job. And actually, that's that's pretty sad because if then you would be in that spot, then you would also think twice before taking a risk and without uh, before taking the risk of putting a youngster in the team. Yeah, true. Because actually, that's what we're asking for. We notice that uh, young guys in Belgium that they don't get enough the opportunity in first division. Well, to do so, as a coach, you need guts, guts to throw them in, yeah. guts to let those players uh, make mistakes and take the heat in the press conference afterwards. It's basically, that's it. Yeah. And of course, that process, it's easier 
if easier if you're coaching in a situation where you feel more backed up, where you feel more backed up uh, by your committee and by your manager than in a system where you should be worried if you lose three times in a row. And of course, in Belgium, we, we have a couple of teams where every year you have like six, seven foreigners mm -hmm. that most of the times also leave after the season to a yeah. better competition. So every year in August, six new Americans arrive. And at that, in that way, you also ask like an investment from your fans in my eyes. Yeah. Because actually you ask from your fans in September to invest some time, energy, attention into getting to know all those new players. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it is very attractive uh, to do so. And it would help if you would have a couple of local exactly. youngsters that work very hard to to try to, to be that next player. Mm -hmm. And maybe here I want to note, I want to mention the example of Luxembourg. Luxembourg, of course, is a very small uh, country where... I think internationally, the basketball is underestimated. Mm -hmm. But Luxembourg, in my eyes, for that country, for the size of that country, has a very interesting uh, model in the sense that they also have 10 first division teams. And in those 10 first division teams, in each team, only two foreigners can play. Mm -hmm. And those two, it's like a gentleman's agreement between all presidents. So, first of all, they get two very good uh, Americans. But next to that, you have all Luxembourgers. Yeah. And you have, we played the finals of the championship in a full house. Like uh, the police had to shut down uh, the gym because <laughs> really? it was completely full. Otherwise, it wouldn't be safe anymore. So we had, for a country like Luxembourg, we had 2,000 fans in the gym. Yeah where I also see a lots of games in Belgium which don't reach 2,000 no. fans. No. But when I look at the, our home games in Luxembourg, I see the whole youth department. I see every single uh, kid from the club that is not on holiday. I see them in the stances with drums and with, with scarves and, and yelling and shouting because all those kids, they have the dream to be one day on that bench of the first team. And I encourage them to do so because yeah. in Luxembourg, they really have a chance to have that spot in yeah, a couple yeah. of years. And they will have their chance to, to practice and to play with that first team. So While what? in Belgium, yeah. I don't see that many youth players anymore going to, to No, the because there's nobody who, who is interested anymore in first division because well, they don't know the teams, like you said. They don't know the players. So why would they even watch the games? They'd rather watch NBA, that's spectacular, and, you know, those are stars. So why would mm -hmm, you even mm -hmm, go mm -hmm. to first division in Belgium? And that, that yeah. makes me sad, of course. I mean, we all want that Belgian basketball uh, evolves to, to a higher level to get more teams in first division and so on. But it, it's, it's, it's unbelievable why that clubs are so short-sighted. Why do they only think in, in short term? Why are they scared? of losing games. I mean, it's not like that we have that kind of level of basketball in Belgium that we really, really need to win those games to get into the playoffs because eight of 10 teams go to the playoffs and, and playing for Europe. I mean, there's maybe there, there is only maybe one or two teams in Belgium that really have something to say at the European level. So it really yes. doesn't make sense that, that teams at, at the lower half of our 
competition are scared to put the youngsters in. No, exactly. And there's one important part you didn't mention yet. So eight out of 10 teams go to the playoffs, but you even have to add that number nine and 10 of the ranking, they don't drop down. Oh, like yeah, yeah, competition. yeah, yeah, indeed. That's very important too. When yeah. I, because when I spoke about Luxembourg, in Luxembourg, it's different. Every single year in first division, two teams go to the second division and two new teams move up. And every single year, there is a huge battle for not going down to the second division. Mm -hmm. It's, it's Which, of uh, course, uh, money-wise and with the license and with a closed league. I, I understand all those parts, but it takes something away about our championship. Absolutely, but but that that should make it even more uh, more easier for clubs to to give the chances to their own youth players if they don't even have the 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 the, the fear of dropping out. I mean, it, it's just mm -hmm. unbelievable. And in my eyes, that has a lot to do with the pressure on coaches. If you ask why are uh, coaching uh, coaches looking so short term? Well, that's simple because every Saturday evening, their job is on the line. If you look at, at the amount of uh, coaches yeah. uh, changes over the last years, there are just a few clubs that really give the confidence to their coach and that really give their coach uh, the opportunity yeah. to build and to trust a process and those clubs have success yes and yeah, that's something. very often it is yeah. like that yeah exactly i mean exactly. okay anyway um one last question or two last questions i have for you one question is that that came up on in the previous podcast we had with uh, martin Wijnans. would a Benny league benefit our bas basketball in belgium no. So a league um, with, with Belgian and Dutch teams, the top mm -hmm. like like the top four or five teams in the Netherlands, together with all our professional clubs, would that benefit our competition? No. Why um, not? I'm pretty clear in that answer. Um, I never believed in that idea from the very start. Um, of course, I worked in the Netherlands at the highest level in first division, mm -hmm. so I can probably estimate uh, that situation maybe a little bit better. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe it would have been a good idea to, to at least ask one of the Belgian coaches that, that worked in Holland, uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe no, maybe involve them a little bit into the process. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's not only me, but, but with better teams in Holland, you also have, for instance, Paul Vervaak, Eddie mm -hmm. Castells, or Tony van den Bos. Yeah. Um, because I don't believe that, except for the top four in Holland, that the other teams, that they would be able to compete to the first division teams in Belgium. Mm -hmm. And I think that step would have been and is uh, way too large, which is now the conclusion after one year of, of uh, speculations about mm -hmm. that. And I think if, if we want to improve our league and our basketball, we have to look up and not downwards. And I t if now you ask me, would it be a good idea to organize an annual cup with teams from Holland, maybe Luxembourg, uh, maybe add the team, some teams that are interested from Germany that are not playing in Europe. And mm -hmm. I say, yes, of course, great, do it, do it. But not a Benny League, not going from 
one opposite into the other opposite in one year, because in my eyes, that wouldn't work. And I think there are different, different things that could make our championship more attractive. And those things that we just talked about would really help making it more attractive. Getting away from the fear of losing games, adding more youth to the teams, and so on and so on. But also the formula, uh, like now we stepped away from the double championship mm -hmm. of the of the 36 regular season yep. games. Um, of course, you end, now you end up with a bit of a strange formula with, with one competition and a half. Yeah. Um, I think there are different ways to solve that. Maybe you should just go to a single competition of uh, 18 games. And then, like they do in Luxembourg, for instance, let the top six play each other and the bottom four, let them play each other. Mm -hmm. And the top six would play for the, the ranking going into the playoffs. And maybe the bottom four, let them play for something else where the winner of that top four, where he gets something towards the next season. Mm. And I think then you only have 18 games, but I think there are other things you can do in between. First of all, value the cup competition way better mm -hmm. and let them, for instance, play in the weekends and not on Wednesday evenings. And on top of that, maybe the league should think about organizing something which we know in Spain as being the Copa del Rey. Yeah. And the Copa del Rey here in Spain is, is really recognized as one of the three trophies you can win during a season. You have the championship, you have the cup, and next to that, you also have the Copa del Rey. And how does it work? Well, actually, at a certain moment in the competition, and I think it is somewhere in November, they look to the ranking and they look to the top eight. And whoever is in the top eight in November will be... Uh, invited to something which is called the Copa del Rey, which is almost a one-week event in the month of February. Mm -hmm. And that starts with um, uh, Wednesday evening for quarterfinals between the eight teams. On Friday, there are two semifinals. And on Sunday, there is a big final where two teams are competing for the Copa del Rey. And the result of this is that from the start, from the competition, everybody is competing and everybody is playing to be in the top eight of the championship. And that's something we didn't know over the last couple of years in Belgium, where before Christmas, everybody was playing, well, just to be in the, in the middle of the standings and not to lose. And, and because the games before Christmas, they didn't matter that much. And with adding something like the Copa del Rey, everybody is playing from the start of the competition. And there you would see that, for instance, teams like uh, Leuven, maybe Liège, Mechelen, they will compete from the very start because they all have a chance. Yeah. If they peak soon enough, they have a chance to be in the top eight in, in November. And it's an event. We talked with uh, Miami Heat NBA scout Nico van den Boart, who is also... Uh, living in Spain, and he was also very excited about Copa del Rey. It's really an event that's really, really popular, not only in Spain. But yeah, exactly, exactly. People go crazy here. Yeah. And here it is an event that moves from club to club. 
and here the clubs they they uh, they all want to invite it because you have one week you have the uh -huh. whole basketball community from yeah. Spain travels over and they have so many fans uh, traveling over from a huge country like Spain to to watch that Copa del Rey and if I can go one step further I would love to have this idea in the NBA, for instance. Oh, and in yeah. the NBA, for some years, I'm not a big fan anymore of the All-Star game because I don't like the type of basketball that's played over there. They're not really competing anymore. Mm -hmm. Nobody's playing defense. For me, this, this, would something, this, would, this would be something huge to introduce in the NBA because also there you, you face the problem that in the beginning of the competition, all teams are playing, but nobody cares about yeah. the results. It's all about the storytelling off court. But in this way, yeah, some teams, they would be competing from the very start. And yeah. then at, at the All-Star break, well, for one week, organize something with the formula of the Copa del Rey. And you would have like a second trophy in the NBA. And even the weaker teams, they would be competing in the beginning of, of the season because... They also the have something system, to win, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And in the system of the Copa del Rey, anybody can win from anybody. Yeah, true. There's there's no way that a, that a fair, or very, very, very unlikely that the weakest team in the NBA can beat the strongest team in a seven-game series. Mm -hmm. That's almost impossible. But in 40 or 48 minutes in basketball, Anything anybody can, can yeah. win against anybody. Yeah. And that's one of the strengths of the Copa del Rey. Yeah, I like the idea. I like the idea. And for sure, in a competition where, of course, over the last seven or eight years, we had the dominance of Ostend. Mm -hmm. In such a competition, a surprise is more likely than in a playoff series with a best of five series. Well, something like the cup uh, also helps with this uh, because that was finally some some different team last year <laughs> than Ustende. Uh, mm -hmm. but, but I mm -hmm. think uh, also involving the, the weaker teams in the competition so they have something to play for that they have something to look out for. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that might be... And maybe, can I grab back once more to Luxembourg? Because actually, <laughs> I, I think they do something different, different in their cup competition, which is actually very attractive, I think. They value the, the cup competition more. And they also involve, of course, the second and third division yeah. teams. And they're... For instance, it's a fact that the lowest-ranked team always plays at home. If the oh, second okay, division yeah. team plays against the first division team, the second division team always plays at home. And on top of that, for every difference in division, they start off with a 10-point difference at the game. Yeah. Okay. And of course, I remember when I was a kid that something like that... Uh, happened in Belgium too. True, yeah. Of course, it is really weird. But on the other hand, in Luxembourg, it is a competition where every two, three years, you have a second division team that makes it to the cup final. <laughs> and at the end of the day, that's what people and that's what fans are expecting from a cup competition. Yeah, they want to see Because that. what makes a cup competition special, that is in soccer, it's the same thing. Every neutral fan is waiting for the fact that a third division soccer team in UK yeah. beats Manchester United yeah. in the 16th finals of a cup competition. Yeah, That's what makes that, that atmosphere so different. 
That makes for a great story as well, of course. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Okay, well, we're almost out of time, uh, Pascal. Um, mm -hmm. One last question for you. Will we ever see you on a Division One court as a coach in Belgium? Well, um, I'm a very ambitious coach. Um, uh, from my side, I would say yes, uh, one day I'd like to do that. Uh, I'm open at, at any moment to talk to any clubs, which I do anyway when I get contacted <laughs> by any club, by the way. Um, yeah, I'm for sure open for the ID, but then I hope that it is within a project, with, uh, a longer vision yeah. and where really we can be able to, to build something. Yeah. And I really think that with my international exper experience, but also my experience in working with uh, foreign and professional players, I can add something to the first division in Belgium right now. Yeah. Okay, well, I want to thank you anyway for your time today and our discussion about a broad range of topics. Um, and, well, we for sure are going to watch out are going to uh, follow your journey around Europe and especially now in Spain, of course. And, uh, yes, it, it has been a pleasure, conversation. <laughs> I'm always open to, to talk about basketball, for sure to talk about uh, Belgian basketball, European basketball. So for yeah, me, it has uh, been a pleasure. I think uh, people should also uh, visit your site because you, you write a lot about basketball, about philosophy and all things like that. And it's really interesting to see um, so people should definitely check your website, pascalmeurs.com, right? Exactly. Voilà. Yes. <laughs> Thanks again, Pascal, and uh, we'll talk later. Thank you very much. Yeah. i speak to you soon. Okay, bye-bye.